Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, October the 15th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, October the 18th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 78th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. I want to welcome you to a very special show tonight, the focus of which is... The false perceptions the American public have regarding Syria and U.S. foreign policy towards Syria. With special guest, the well-studied Mike Whitney returns to bringing light into darkness. Enjoy. Good evening, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. This is your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Friday October 15th, 2021, we are pre-taping a show that will play on October 18th, 2021 at 6 p.m. right here on the premier community radio station of the nation. That would be, again, 91.7 FM. We are really blessed to uh, have Mike Whitney returning to Bringing Light into Darkness. He's been a longtime contributor to the show. Mike, welcome back. Pedro, thank you for having me. Mike is a he's a freelance writer. He's been an investigative journalist for many, many years. I started reading his pieces probably seven, eight years ago and just found them to be very well researched and put together and many of the predictions that he was making way ahead of the tide, so to speak, came to fruition and that those are the people we like to follow and invite onto the show, those that do their homework. In two thousand six Mike won a Project Censored Award as well. And so, Mike, with that being said, I want to just jump into the topic for tonight. I wanted to talk a little bit about history and U.S. foreign policy in Syria and TV and written coverage of it by our mainstream press, a study of which provides important insights really into the character and methods of our foreign policy and the quality or lack of quality of of good information that's made available, though, to the U.S. public. So some of our most trusted perceptions have been created not based on fact, but by false presentation by U.S. government leaders, and then the media has failed to do its homework, or maybe that is its homework, to just be the mouthpiece of our government leaders. But at the end of the day, we suffer as an American democracy because we lose touch with what's really going on in the world. And so a number of premises came up that I wanted to question as Syria is, is suffering from unrelenting sanctions after 10 years of, of war. 
So a number of, of beliefs or premises that the U.S. public have about Syria that are false or misleading, we wanted to review tonight. Because it is upon these false premises that gives our U.S. foreign policy free reign to aggressively pursue bellicose policies that are destroying the, the lives of millions of Syrians. There's three or four beliefs that I thought would be important for us to touch on and dispel. One is the unchallenged premise that Syria started the whole, quote-unquote, civil war by provoking the United States and the West to do something in light of its suppression in 2011 of democratic protests against the Assad government. And we'll come back to that discussion on that shortly, but I wanted to mention just two or three other points that we wanted to get to. Another unchallenged premise was that Assad was gassing his own people in March of 2013 at Khan al-Assad and then a much greater death outcome from the El Gota uh, gas attacks that same year in August of 2013 that John Kerry claimed with absolute certainty was executed by the Assad government. The third was the unchallenged premise that the Syrian conflict that raged for some 10 years beginning in 2011 was in fact a civil war and that our involvement was always about supporting moderate rebels fighting for a more democratic government. And so we're going to explain how it was not a civil war, that if it was not for U.S. involvement, we would not have seen a war with such intensity and levels of devastation that we've seen beginning in 2011. And that Assad is profoundly unpopular and the majority population of Syrians wished for him to be replaced. And just through repression, he maintains his presidency. So, Mike, let me just start off with President Obama in 2015 made the comment that Assad had started it, so to speak. And this was at a U.N. General Assembly speech that President Obama delivered in 2015. And there's a number of indications that we had been trying to actually destabilize Syria and replace Assad from a much earlier point in time. I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you, I know that you were s citing some research that you did by Kennedy. Was that the author? Can you kind yeah, of... Yeah, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Yeah, give, give us a little background as to what some of those findings suggest as to when the United States really started seeking to change the leadership sure. of Syria. Sure. I'd like to preface that with just a comment about the historical background of our relations with Syria our antagonism towards Syria happened simultaneous to the emergence of the national security state, particularly the CIA following World War II under Alan Dulles. People might remember that in those first few years, we not only toppled the first democratically elected government, Mossadegh, in Iran, which ended up in a 30-year reign of the brutal uh, dictator, the Shah of Iran, and ended up with foul relations that we have today, but it was also, uh, Syria was also on the target list, as listeners probably can appreciate, just for the fact that the oil-rich, resource-rich uh, Middle East was always a target of U.S. ambition. You know, the, the joke is, how did all our oil get under their sand? Mm -hmm. But uh, actually, that's, that's a truism in Washington, and the CIA, as early as 1956, the CIA launched its first plot to overthrow the Syrian government, and then followed that up years later with another a plot, both of which temporarily worked on a temporary basis. The first one actually didn't, but the second one did, but then it all fell apart, and they 
resumed basically the control of their own government. But they were always the target. Now, what you're talking about is what happened much later under the Assad regime, particularly in 2009, when, let me just read you a passage from this article about the pipeline war by uh, Robert F. Kennedy, just one small paragraph. Mm -hmm. Secret cables and reports by the United States, Saudi Arabia, and the Israeli intelligence agencies indicate that at the moment Assad rejected the Qatari pipeline, military and intelligence planners quickly arrived at the consensus of fomenting a Sunni uprising in Syria to overthrow the uncooperative Bashar al-Assad was the best feasible plan to achieving their shared objectives of completing the Qatari-Turkey gas link. In 2009, according to WikiLeaks, soon after Bashar al-Assad rejected the pipeline, the CIA began funding the opposition groups in Syria. So what that means, in essence, is that there was a proposal for a pipeline between Qatar Jordan running from Qatar through Jordan, through Syria, and up into Turkey, that would have comprised the majority of gas that would be distributed to the European, the lucrative European market, would have put a lot of pressure geopolitically on Russia that services most of the gas pipeline there, and would have been a real opportune situation for not only the gas providers and the pipeline manufacturers of the United States and the big oil companies, but also geopolitically, it would put us in a much more advantageous situation for controlling the Middle East and providing dividends to Israel for expanding its power as well, which is always a benefit in Washington's point of view. Mm -hmm. But that was basically scuttled by Assad's determination not to accept their offer to run the pipelines through, and instead he worked out an alternate plan for working with the Iranians, because they're, they both control the PARS gas field off the coast of Iran, between Iran and Qatar, and they would run it from Iran through Jordan once again, through Syria and up into Turkey. And that way they would control the flow of gas. That would be beneficial in the long term geopolitically for Hamas and uh, Hezbollah, and uh, strengthening an Arab alliance that has grown up basically apart from the Saudi-U.S.-Israel trifecta. So, naturally, when Assad made his intentions clear, then he immediately was struck off the welcome list in Washington, and uh, the CIA began immediately funding opposition groups in Syria. Now, as it happens, those opposition groups initially were, what did they call them, the friendly rebels or something? The uh, Moderate uh, rebels. The what? Moderate rebels. The moderate rebels. But soon, the CIA became recruiting people off their vast database in al-Qaeda, uh, primarily from other parts of the Middle East and Libya, and they began transferring weapons and munitions and that sort of thing from Libya to the rebels or the uh, uh, al-Qaeda people who are now operating in Syria against uh, the Assad regime. Although Assad made mistakes that provoked some of the furor originally, it's entirely on the CIA that it turned out to be the bloody uh, decade-long war that it has been, killing uh, tens of thousands of people and basically splitting the country in two. Right. And I think also we traditionally pick up around 2011, but a couple of things is that President Obama in his 2015 UN speech conveniently ignores, and he must have known about it, that contradict his claim that Assad, quote-unquote, started it by his 
suppression of the 2011 protests include most famously probably General Wesley Clark back in 2001 the retired four-star U.S. general and Supreme Allied Commander of NATO during that 1999 war in Yugoslavia. President Obama, in his U.N. comments in 2015, indicated how, as I said, Assad started in 2011, but here we are back in 2001, some 10 years earlier, and General Wesley Clark, he details planning that the Pentagon was doing as including Syria among the nations that the United States was seeking to, to overthrow. In fact, a quote in this memo that he got access to, he says it describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq, then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off with Iran. So really, Syria, more than anything else, I think was targeted because of its relationship to Iran, which we're really trying to get after as well. Yeah, so what that yeah, go ahead. So what really interrupted that plan? Well, it certainly wasn't goodwill on the part of the United States or the CIA. What interrupted that plan was the very visible reemergence of Russia as a geopolitical as a global power. We remember just a year earlier in Ukraine, Putin defended the people of the Russian speaking people in the Donbass, mm-hmm. which uh, infuriated Washington, and he was used as a scapegoat from that point on as though he was the one who provoked the confrontation. But after that, Putin took a very daring choice of intervening in October of 2015 in Syria. And it was a well-thought-out plan. It's not something he wanted to do. There's the last thing in the world he wanted to do. A guy like Putin, who imagines Russia as being integrated with both Europe United States and the global economic system, he didn't want to confront the United States, the most powerful person in that system. But... If Syria had fallen, if Assad had fallen, what he saw is the entire Middle East just basically unraveling, because you remember just years early, the same thing happened in Iraq, and it just turned out to be a massive catastrophe that destroyed one of the oldest civilizations in the world and killed over a million people and left utter anarchy in its wake. Well, after seeing that and being double-crossed by the United States and Libya, he just put his foot down and said, well, we have to get involved here in some limited capacity, so he never committed to putting troops on the ground, but he did offer his air force. And that was enough to turn the tide of the war, to recapture the industrial centers, but never to recapture the area beyond the Euphrates, east of the Euphrates, where the oil is located and that the United States still controls. Right, and that's all very true, and I think to fill that out a little bit is to indicate that a year A full year before the Russians got involved in Syria, the U.S. was already involved with airstrikes against quote-unquote ISIS locations, except they weren't doing anything to fight back ISIS in, in a real military sense. They were getting stronger and stronger and provided basically the armed type of opposition that we claim moderate rebels had, but there were no moderate rebels of any substance. The groups of people that were fighting Assad were overwhelmingly these jihadists. And in fact, it was only after Russia did get involved with their airstrikes that you saw the ISIS demise and very quick demise relatively of all these major areas that you're talking about in Syria that Russia helped them get back control over the industrial heartland, or if you will. That's yeah, re- absolutely. But, you know, yeah. I think it's worth pointing out that from a geopolitical point of view, the day that Putin committed and got involved was 
the last day of the unipolar world power, because up to that point, the United States could very arrogantly, and I would say stupidly, cast its forces around and, and supply people like al-Qaeda or whatever, and, and just do whatever they wanted because there was no viable opposition. Now we see that that's just simply not the case. Russia certainly hasn't prevailed in Syria. There's basically an iron curtain along the Euphrates River that runs north to south, but they have created a stalemate, and the United States is not able to achieve its policy objectives in Syria. And this is the first time it's happened, and this is why Putin is so vilified and demonized in the U.S. media, because he is the only viable opposition that has appeared in the last 30 years. No doubt. And to your point <clears throat> earlier that in the Ukraine, it was the same type of uh, outcome and support for folks that, by the way, had overwhelmingly that whole Donetsk, Lugansk area that you talked about that are pre predominantly Russian-speaking people in the Ukraine, they had overwhelmingly, by more than 70%, according to the polling, had voted for the very president that we cooed out. And so they were for a lot of reasons, were fighting back in order to protect their own interests. In yeah, so if they had their druthers, they would be reunited with Russia. Well, I don't, but, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. He's not going yeah, to provoke the people like at the U.N. and the rest of the world, the United States, by doing taking an action like that and basically annexing that area in Ukraine. No, and he hasn't annexed it, and he, and he could have, and he, but his main deal was to protect these people from being overrun by this ultra-right-wing, neo-Nazi-led new coup government. I mean, you had neo-Nazis in, in a half dozen or more cabinet positions post-coup. This is something we've documented in other shows. But I wanted to go back, because I think to our listeners, to make the claim that these jihadists were the ones that were really the backbone of the forces fighting against Assad, that is a huge subject and indictment, not just of our foreign policy as a country, but of our character of a nation, that we would not just tolerate terrorism, we would enlist it for our own purposes, giving it a false legitimacy. And Stephen Goins, back in 2016, wrote this piece, basically just citing information from the Congressional Research Service. They had a, the CRS had a report on Syria, on the Syrian conflict. The report of October 2015 was entitled Armed Conflict in Syria, Overview and U.S. Response, and it was prepared by the Congressional Research Service, an arm of the United States Library of Congress. The Congressional Research Service provides policy and legal analysis to committees and members of the U.S. House and Senate. And this report basically went on to show that overwhelmingly the folks fighting against the Assad government were these jihadists. And according to the researchers, weapons the U.S. furnished to selected groups had made their ways to jihadists. And it wasn't just our weapons, but also our allies supporting these forces, Saudi Arabia and some other Gulf monarchies. So the truth of the matter is when we think of Syria and we think of a civil war, if it indeed was accurate that it was a civil war, that would just mean you have people of Syria fighting each other. But that clearly was not the case. But instead, when really the documentation now is clear that the overwhelming thousands of people that the Russians have killed and the Syrian government have killed fighting the Syrian government are predominantly foreign jihadist fighters. Okay, And then Returning to Stephen Goins' January 10, 2016 
article, U.S. role as state sponsor of terrorism implied in the United States CRS report on Syria conflict. He writes, quote, the failure of a now abandoned Pentagon program to train and equip vetted rebel groups. He's speaking about George Lloyd J. Austin III, the top American commander in the Middle East at the time, who told the Senate Armed Services Committee that despite the Pentagon spending $500 million training and equipping moderate rebels, only four or five were in the fight. Stephen Goins, he also cited a Wall Street Journal article by Stuart Rollo, Turkey's Dangerous Game in Syria, in which he writes, as the Wall Street Journal observed in late December 2015, moderate rebels do not exist. They've either been absorbed into Jabhat al-Nusra, Ara al-Sham, and ISIS, the extremist terrorist groups which dominate the opposition, or were Islamist militants all along, end quote. This is what Tulsi Gabbards and Richard Black, the state senator from Virginia, retired Marine, were sounding the alarming bells on that no one paid attention to in the mainstream press, despite the fact that they both had visited Syria on multiple occasions and were prominent elected officials. And instead of addressing their arguments, there were comments like Hillary Clinton's that Tulsi Gabbard's was a Russian agent or acting like a Russian agent. Yeah, even aside from the documentation, we have statements on the record by Joe Biden. We have Mm -hmm. emails from Hillary Clinton. We have statements that were copied from John Kerry, from Wesley Clark, Mm -hmm. from any number of people who verify that these people are jihadists, you know, that Mm -hmm. they're uh, Salafists. And it was uh, General Michael Flynn who fell out of favor with the Washington establishment when he openly said that if we don't take control of what we're doing, we're going to have a Salafist principality in East Syria and Western Iraq, Mm -hmm. which is what they were angling for. I mean, there was an article, an op-ed by John Bolton some years ago, I think it was 2016, where he said we need to support a Sunni stand. Now, the, the area that's now controlled by the Kurds, he imagined being held, uh, given over to you know, the remnants of Saddam Hussein's army and uh, political establishment, and that they would control that area and create an entirely new state that was sympathetic to the interests of the United States. And this is just comical, the way that you know, the United States just thinks they're moving chess pieces around the board, that people you know, come up with these ideas and they're put into play while sacrificing tens of thousands of lives. This is all part of the public record. We're, you know, playing with fire by using these maniacs who later come back to bite us. And and it did bite us because, look, there was over a million people who exited these war-torn areas like Syria that fled into Europe, causing all kinds of huge immigration problems, strains on their political system, and all kinds of, you know, political uprisings as far as their own people because of the U.S. activities in the Middle East. Right. I think to just give a little more background to what you commented with Michael Flynn, you know, he was a lieutenant general that was the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And in 2012, there was a DIA classified report that came out in 2015. And this formally classified DIA report stated, quote, the Salafist The Muslim Brotherhood and al-Qaeda in Iraq are the major forces driving the insurgency in Syria, end quote, and that they were being supported by, quote, the West, Gulf countries, and Turkey, end quote. 
In other words, saying exactly what you said, that the whole backbone of the resistance against Assad in Syria were these jihadist and, and Salafist elements. And then in 2015, the DIA classified report got declassified. And that's when he was interviewed and basically just said that, no, Obama's administration did not turn a blind eye. They willingly, they knew, they had to know because of all of this detailed intelligence. And so it is interesting that people don't think about that when they think of Flynn. They think of, oh, someone that lied under oath or or allegedly lied under oath and was entrapped in this, uh, uh, other people claim, but, you know, probably the real bitterness against Flynn by the Democratic uh, hierarchy had to do with this very, very powerful report. And I just want to just point out a couple more things for people that are not familiar with this subject, that the conclusion by this congressional research group says, the report says that in the absence of grassroots support for political opposition coalitions in Syria, the U.S. is relying on a number of tactics to pressure the current government in Syria to step down, including one, keeping ISIS alive as a tool to sustain military pressure on Damascus, two, arming jihadist groups indirectly, and we can assume directly, to pressure Assad, three, seeking to create a moderate opposition that will act as a U.S. partner, which they never were able to do. Next, the trying to co-opt parts of the existing Syrian state to take a partnership role in the governing in a post-Assad Syria. Before we go on with the implications of this Congressional Research Service summary and other collaborating information about the U.S. relationship with jihadist forces throughout the world, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. We'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial.